Good morning. Thanks for making it out here on a rainy Sunday morning. Always thankful for the rain in California. I make a practice never to complain about the rain in California, no matter what I'm doing, because we always need it. So I'm going to begin with a question this morning. Why do you get yourself up on a rainy Sunday morning in order to come here to church? That's my question this morning to kick things off. Now, if I were Paul Taylor, I would have you answer these questions on your phone and it would appear here in some kind of nifty word cloud. All your answers, all your reasons for coming to church would appear up there and there would be a winner and a loser or something like that. I don't know. But I'm not going to do that because I'm not Paul Taylor. Nevertheless, I'm going to ask the question for you to think it through for yourself. Why do you come here to church on a Sunday morning? Or if you're on live stream, you could be watching a football game, I'm sure, right now, but you are tuning into us. So why do you do that? Well, listen to the answer given by a fellow by the name of Robert Farrar Capon. He was a sort of irascible Episcopalian priest, and he answers the question this way. Why do you come to church? You don't go because the tank full of Jesus you got last Sunday has now been used up and you need a refill. You go to do precisely what the church has always been smart enough or lucky enough or guided enough to call it all along. You go to celebrate holy mysteries. You go to taste and see how gracious the hospitable Lord is. To share still another bottle of that great old wine he's always kept your cellar full of. You go, in short, to have a ball. To keep company while you roll over your tongue the delectable things that have been yours all along, but that get better every time you taste them. Well, I have to admit that when I get myself up on a Sunday morning and I'm driving here from Sunnyvale, I don't think of myself as going to a party. But in reality, we have much to celebrate. So that is one image we can evoke when we come here on a Sunday morning. We come here not least to celebrate. So we have much to celebrate. Now, we saw last week in Ezra chapter 5, that's the book we're studying, by the way. Ezra is a book in the Hebrew Scriptures, also called the Old Testament. We saw last week that the uh, exiles who had returned from Babylon uh, resumed work on the temple. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and they went into exile. They came back from exile, and they began work on the temple. Then it stopped for a while. Now they have resumed work on the temple. But the people of the land where, uh, where the Israelites have come back to in Judah, Palestine, in Jerusalem, they're a little bit worried about all of this. And so they challenge them. They question them. What, what's, this go, what's this going on here? Why are you doing all of this? Is this legal? Are you supposed to do this? And the people, the people of God responded, well, yes, Cyrus, the king of Persia, actually commanded us to do this. And so we have sanction from the king of Persia who rules over this land. And so then the people of the land who were living in Judah inquired of the current king, Darius, and they sent a letter up to him to, get, uh, to find out whether this was so or not. And so Darius, the current king, then searches the records and finds out, yes, this is true. Cyrus, the previous king, had actually ordered the, the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And so uh, then we pick it up in verse 6, uh, Ezra chapter 6, verse 6, And this is the letter that Darius wrote to the people of the land. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shephar, Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are 
in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on, the, on its site. Moreover, I make a decree re- regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. That's beyond the Euphrates River, west of the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So we have Darius, the king of Persia, responding to the people of the land, saying, yes, it's okay for the people of God, these people, the Jews, to rebuild their temple. And don't interfere with them, number one. Leave them alone. They're doing what they're supposed to do, number one. And number two, actually, I want you to contribute to this work with some of your taxes. So this is an amazing thing that the the Persian king does to allow the Israelites to rebuild their temple. And not only that, then Darius... uh, wants to make sure that all of this happens so that he has the favor of the God of Israel. The Persian kings tend to cover all their bases. They believe in their own gods, but they also have the sense that there are other gods perhaps out there, and especially they are concerned with the God of Israel. So they want to earn his favor, and they think if they allow the, the, this uh, temple to be rebuilt, then the God of Israel will, will look on them and their dynasty with favor. So they are allowed then to uh, rebuild the temple, to continue the work because they have the favor of this particular Persian king. So they are allowed to worship freely. The government allows them to worship freely. Now, our government allows us to worship freely as well. And we have to just think for a second that this is really an amazing thing. We take it for granted, but this is an amazing thing. I was alerted to this a few years ago when we were having a regional pastors meeting that would meet once a month over here in the fireside wing. And one of the pastors who would join us each week was the pastor of an Armenian American church. And he had uh, previously served in Lebanon. And at one of our gatherings, it was one of these beautiful spring days, the doors were open and we were all sitting down enjoying each other. And he stood up and he sort of gave us this little sermon and said, you Americans, so you don't know how spoiled you are. Here we are, a group of pastors gathering to have lunch together, gathering to pray together. And we are not worried about anyone breaking in here and opening fire. <laughs> well, I had never thought of it that way before, <laughs> right? But he's, but he's right. So we have the freedom for now to worship our God freely, celebrate freedom. It's something to celebrate. Celebrate freedom. Now, we don't know that that's always going to be the case. Historically, you look in the scriptures and you understand that sometimes God raises up rulers that are favorable to the people of God, and sometimes God raises up rulers who are unfavorable or unfriendly. For example, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was unfriendly. He was the one who actually destroyed the temple. God actually raised him up to do that. And then, of course, now we've got the Persian kings who seem to be much more friendly. So you don't know what's coming. And as the people of God, as worshipers of God, we just take what comes. For now, 
we have freedom. Celebrate freedom. If it gets any worse, well, who knows if it's going to get any worse, but we'll take whatever comes. We might not be able to worship freely the way we are now, but we'll worship. We just have to learn to take what comes. What God gives us, God gives us, and we learn to adjust to that. For now, celebrate freedom. Okay, so now how are the people of the land going to respond to this letter? Let's look at verse 13. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet, of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, son of Iddo. They finished their building by, de- by the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So uh, the, the work continues, and we hear now that it is the prophets of Israel who in part inspired the Israelites to continue this work. So, yes, everything came back. This edict came back, and they were allowed to do this, but now they're continuing their work, and it's their prophets who spur them on. They are inspired by God to inspire the people of God to continue this great work of building the temple, and eventually they conclude the building. They finish the temple, which is an amazing thing that they were able to accomplish. After all this time and all this work, the stops and the starts and all this energy and all this disappointment sometimes, somehow they were able to continue this work and the prophets inspired them to do so. We are the temple of God today. We, the people of God, together, the spirit dwells in us. We are the temple of God. Do we have prophets to inspire us to continue this work of building the temple of God here in this place and in other places also? Indeed, we do. I highlighted last week at the end of the service a couple of verses from uh, Ephesians, from the Apostle Paul, which are key to understanding how we apply the book of Ezra today for the New Testament church. Listen to the Apostle Paul again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, some of those apostles and some of those prophets wrote the New Testament and so we build on the work of the prophets and the apostles as, they, as their work is recorded here for us in the New Testament. Thank God we have the New Testament. Thank God we have the Old Testament. Thank God that the word of God is complete. And what do we do now? We build on their work. We build our church based on the work of the apostles. We build our church based on what we see in the word of God. And that is why you will see at this church, week by week, somebody standing up here and opening up the scriptures. We are building our church based on the word of God, the scriptures, the work of the prophets recorded for us, inspired by God. Now, the wonderful thing about this is we are not building our church on anyone's opinion. 
Now, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of theology. I read a lot of commentaries. I read devotionals. I read a lot of newspapers. I try to be informed, and I get a lot of people's opinion. I am very much helped by this. I sift through all of this. But when I come to the word of God, I am so thankful that I am not getting someone's opinion. I may not understand everything in it, but I know it is the truth. And I know that I must build my life based on this book. We must build our church based on this book. We must build our church based on what this book teaches. So we teach what it teaches in order to build our church, in order to build the temple of God. And if you are not building your life based on this book, if you're not building your church based on the scriptures, you are building your life, you are building your church on sinking sand. Someone's opinion. We have the word of God. We're going to continue to open it up and do the best we can to understand it and to build our church on it. Celebrate the scriptures. We have a firm foundation in the scriptures on which to build. Celebrate the scriptures. Listen to the old hymn. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Celebrate the scriptures. So now the people of God, having finished the temple, they dedicate it. Verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests, And the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered offered at the dedication of the house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the, uh, set the priests and the divisions and the Levites and their divisions for the service of God at Israel, as it is written in this book. So they celebrate with joy. There is this tremendous joy in the community. They did this thing. God helped them do this thing. The prophets came alongside them to help them do this thing. The governors and the kings cooperated somehow, and they were able to complete the temple. And they celebrate with joy. Now, the narrator wants us to understand that there is continuity here between the first temple and this temple and between the people of God in this era and the prior era. We hear that they are offering sacrifices for the 12 tribes of Israel, even though only two have returned plus a smattering of Levites. So now this constitutes all Israel. In fact, that word is used here, all Israel to convey the idea that these are the people of God now for this time and place moving forward. So we are connected, by the way, with this ancient thing. We are the people of God. We are connected to those people today. And Paul calls us the Israel of God in Galatians chapter 6. So uh, they faced these enormous challenges, and they were able to complete this work. We, of course, in our time face enormous challenges. Everyone knows that life is hard. Everyone knows that life is difficult at certain times. But I do believe that God gives us things to celebrate in the midst of those challenges. And when God gives you something to celebrate, by all means, you should celebrate. So in the midst of life difficulties, it behooves us to be on the lookout for things to celebrate, to be on the lookout for the things that God is doing. Especially be on the lookout for the things that God is doing in the church 
the things that God is doing among us, and celebrate those things when you see them. For example, we've been a little more intentional recently about trying to highlight for you the things that we are seeing God doing in the church. So this morning, you heard a little bit about what God is doing in the college ministry and the young adults ministry, and this is something to celebrate. So we celebrate what God does. I've uh, shared with you uh, in recent weeks about my experience with the fall retreat. I've probably shared a little bit too much about that, but you're going to hear it again today anyway, um, because this is something that has been very impactful for me. Um, We didn't know whether we were going to be able to do the fall retreat this year, and when we did it, we were actually able to do it, and it it turned out great. And I really had the sense that I wanted to celebrate after this. And uh, there's a team that uh, we meet with uh, throughout the year to plan and to pray. And I, wa- I really wanted to celebrate with them because I'd seen the Lord do great things through this team, through the years, and this year as well. So Karen inv- and I invited them all over for dinner. And last week, we all got together in our backyard and we celebrated a nice dinner together. And we all went around and each person shared what they had experienced during the fall retreat. Each person shared what they had seen the Lord do in the context of the fall retreat. And it was a rich time of celebrating. We worked so hard. We planned so hard. I didn't want to let let it all pass without taking notice, without celebrating together. And I say that to you to encourage you that you can do the same sorts of things in your life or in your corners of the church. When you see God doing something, celebrate. You could have a dinner. You don't have to have a dinner. You could just have a little gathering. You could just send a text. You could make a phone call. You could have a couple people together and and celebrate. What do you see God doing? Something great happened here for me. I want to share that with you. Can you share that with me also? So celebrate the church. Celebrate the church. Now, these people have much to celebrate, and they have celebrated much, that is the people of God back in Ezra chapter 6, but they are not through celebrating. Look at verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel." Now, the Israelites, back in the land, now they celebrate the Passover and they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, both of these feasts commemorated the Exodus and remembered that. So what God did, first of all, then in the Exodus was he rescued the people of God, rescued the Israelites from the Egyptians, took them out into the wilderness where they worshiped him, and eventually they made it into the promised land. So the Israelites always looked back to the Exodus. And now they are celebrating the Exodus again back in the land, celebrating the Passover. This has all the earmarks of a new Exodus because what has the Lord done this time? He has liberated them not from Egypt, but he has liberated them from Babylon so that they can come back into the land, back into the land, worship God, build the temple, and celebrate once again the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
and they do so with joy. They see what God has done, and they are joyful. In fact, the text says that it is the Lord himself who makes them joyful. He has given them circumstances in which they can celebrate, but it is the Lord himself who has put joy in their hearts so that they respond in celebration with joy. Indeed, they have much to celebrate, and we have much to celebrate. In this context, why? Because the exodus, the new exodus, was not complete then, and now what's happened for us. We participate in this great, greater and grander new exodus that has been affected by Christ. He is the Passover lamb who ultimately rescues us, not from Babylon, not from Egypt, but from the greater powers, Satan, sin, and death. So you see Jesus coming toward the end of his life, and when he celebrates the Passover, he does so, he, gets, he gathers his 12 disciples, and when he, when he celebrates the Passover, he does something absolutely amazing. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. He places himself at the center of the most historic celebration in Israel, the Passover. He's affecting a new, greater, and grander exodus for his disciples and for us. And then, of course, the New, uh, the new Testament institutes the Lord's Supper in which we continue to partake of the bread and the wine until Jesus comes back. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Everything that that Passover lamb was about was pointing to Christ, the ultimate and final sacrifice by which our sins are forgiven and by which Satan, death, sin are defeated. So celebrate Christ. Celebrate the church. Yes, of course. Celebrate freedom. Celebrate Christ. And we're going to do that today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table, and we're going to make a celebration of it. Now, oftentimes, uh, the Lord's Supper is treated in a somber way, and that's, an, that's appropriate to do that. But uh, originally, we see that Jesus is celebrating a Passover meal. And when the Lord's Supper is instituted and when they can continue forward with that in the, in, the, in the New Testament church, it's a meal. It's a celebratory meal. Perhaps there was probably a somber moment in it when they recognized the the death of Christ, but they were celebrating. And what does Paul say? Celebrate the festival. So the Lord's Supper should have a celebratory element in it also, at least from time to time. And we're going to do that today. So they, they do this work, they finish the work, they dedicate the temple, they celebrate. There's all this joy. God puts all this joy in their hearts Nevertheless, something is missing. There's something in Ezra 6 of an anticlimax. What is that? Now, if you, uh, you said, just taken up your Bible for the first time and opened up to Genesis and read through very carefully and happened to remember everything, you would have remembered that 
Uh, when the Lord rescued them from Egypt, he took them out into the wilderness and they built the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple. It was the portable precursor to the temple. And when they finished the temple, the glory of the Lord, the visible presence of the Lord invaded the temple. There was this glory cloud that came and people were going, whoa, we can't even go into this place. God has taken up residence here. And God is enthroned there in the temple. He won a great victory over Egypt. He is enthroned celebrating that victory. And the people of God, although you can't see God, could see the glory cloud to remind them and to show them that God was with them. It was awesome. So eventually they get into the promised land and they build the temple under the direction of Solomon. And they finish the temple. And there's a great celebration. And what happens? The glory cloud invades the temple, and it is awesome, and they can't go into the temple because it is so awesome. The glory cloud is there. God is there. God is with them. God has won a great victory. They know that God is in charge here. God's in control. We're worshiping this God. The glory cloud has invaded. Here it is. Okay. Temple is destroyed by the Babylonians, 586 B.C. The exiles come back. They rebuild the temple. We know what to expect now. Now they finish the temple. They celebrate. There's all this celebration, and there's no cloud. I get to the end. I read Ezra 7. There's no no cloud. Oh, oh, I'm going to get to the cloud. I'm going to keep reading. I keep reading. I go. I make it all the way to Malachi. Whoa, there's no cloud. I want my cloud. I want, the, I want the presence of the Lord. I want the visible presence of the Lord to show me that God is with these people. And there's no visible presence of the Lord even though the temple is completed. Why not? You have to keep reading. That's why there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. You flip the page, you keep reading, and you come to the Gospel of John. You come to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and John says, the Word, who is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, literally, among us. And what does John say? We beheld his glory. Everything that the temple was supposed to be, Jesus is because it was always God's intention to dwell in a flesh and blood temple, and Jesus is it. Paul says the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. Jesus himself said regarding his presence, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the temple of God. He is the house of God. It's absolutely awesome to think about. But Jesus is not through. He continues to build. He continues to build on this temple, and he expands it to include all his followers. That's you and me today. So as we've said many times throughout our study of Ezra, we are the temple of God. So you get to the Gospel of John, you finish that, and then you say, okay, I'm going to keep on reading. I'm I'm going to get to the book of Acts, and Jesus has ascended, and he's told his first followers, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit. So that's exactly what they do. And they're all gathered in one place in this house in Jerusalem. And we read this in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What we wanted to see in Ezra chapter 6, we get in Acts chapter 2. Only this time, the Spirit of God in a visible way fills not the temple, which was still standing in Jerusalem, but fills an ordinary house and more importantly, these men and women inside the house. So, it all leads to this. It all leads to the coming of the Spirit. So, what were these people back in Ezra chapter 6 doing? They probably didn't understand it completely, but they were setting the stage. They were setting the stage for something bigger and, and better and grander, the coming of Christ and the coming of the Spirit. And we live in light of that day. It's an awesome time to be alive. This is absolutely breathtaking. And I haven't even taken you to the new creation, which the Apostle John describes as a temple in the book of Revelation. So we celebrate Christ, and we also celebrate the Spirit. Celebrate the Spirit. When I first arrived at PBC as a pastor, I really wanted to understand the Holy Spirit. So I probably spent about two weeks reading through the entire New Testament very slowly, and I really took note of every episode that involved the Holy Spirit. And eventually I came to Galatians chapter 4, 6, which says that the Spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father. Now the Spirit is about many things, but there I really understood that the Spirit, whatever else the Spirit is about, is about relationship. The Spirit is about creating and nurturing our relationship with God, an intimate, trusting relationship with God, so that the Spirit even now is crying out within us, for that intimate relationship. And I remember I was over in one of those wings over there. That was where the offices were back there, back then. And I, I read Galatians 4, 6, 4, 6. I stood up, I pointed at it, and I said, that's what the Spirit is about. And I celebrated. So in summation, celebrate freedom. Celebrate the scriptures. Celebrate the church. Celebrate Christ. Celebrate the Spirit. We have much to celebrate. And folks, we are only scratching the surface. Ezra chapter 6 only allows us to scratch the surface. So be on the lookout for all sorts of opportunities to celebrate. And maybe when you come to church, you might think of the old Episcopalian priest, and maybe he was right. Maybe you go to church to have a ball to keep company while, while you roll over your tongue the delectable things that have been yours all along, but that get better every time you taste them. Well, we're going to taste them this morning. We're going to taste the bread, and we're going to taste the wine. Now, admittedly, what we're doing it, the way we're doing it now, it doesn't taste that good. I understand that. But you still will taste something. And it's pointing to this reality. It's pointing to the reality of the sacrifice of Christ his body, his blood. And it's something that's very physical that God gives us to do to celebrate this spiritual reality so that we know it's true. You can't see the spirit. You can't see God. There were moments when you saw manifestations of that, but you can see this. You can touch this. You can smell this. 
And what we want to do this morning especially is we want to celebrate. Paul says, celebrate the feast. Celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. It's an awesome thing. Let me pray for us. And you can take it uh, as you please. Heavenly Father, um, we have been given much to celebrate. We've been given this festival to celebrate. We've been given Christ to celebrate. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great offering on our behalf. And we celebrate that today. We are joyful for what you have done for us. Thank you so much. Amen.